Back in my MFA program, I had a friend who gave me some advice. The notion was given to him by one of his professors. It really stuck with me, and to this day, I still tell my own students the same thing. With writing, the process of revision isn't the cleanup after the party. It is the party. Essentially, once you've got your first draft finished, it can sometimes feel like an arduous slog to go back and revise that work. Fix grammar, remove superfluous details, maybe realize you have to rewrite everything you just put to the page. In a way, it is self-analysis, and that can be tough at times. So why would this writing teacher insist that revision is the party and not the cleanup? Why do I continue to tell my students that same thing now? Because it isn't just about moving commas or triaging run-on sentences, but an opportunity to deepen your message, to find the heart. I had a professor and a good friend, John McNally, you guys should check him out, who once told me about an experience he'd had with his own mentor. And this was a very successful novelist with a slew of awards and movie adaptations under his belt. Well, John happened to stop by his house just as the man finished a new novel, something that had been years in the making. And while this should have been the time for celebration, for that rush of relief, there was, instead, an air of frustration. When John asked why he wasn't happy to be finished, the writer simply said, It wasn't until I got to the end of this that I realized it wasn't the story I wanted to tell. This was all background information. These last pages aren't the end of my novel, but the beginning. I have to start all over. At once, that must have been a crushing yet enriching idea. If I had come to that realization with any of the projects I've taken on, I don't know if I could have begun again. I'd like to think that I'm not beholden to my pride, but I am. So what? Why am I spouting off about all this? Well, because all the advice I've been given and continue to give in my own classes, is something that I've completely ignored with this podcast. I can't go back. Once the episode is published, I can't revise to add details or foreshadowing. A theme that I might find late can't be woven into earlier chapters. So I have to hope that I've given myself enough threads to tug on later. Many writers have an idea of the full story when they begin. Some have chalkboards or a series of poster boards, that trace the timelines, the overall arc of the events they will eventually write. There's an outline to follow. With the ghost modernist, much to the dismay of my anxiety and perfectionist attitude, I gave myself a challenge. Let's just see where it goes. With the first season, The House Unsettling, I began with a married couple and their dogs navigating an unfamiliar southern landscape and their first owned home that might have been haunted. The line between fiction and non was very much blurred with that one. This season, I had the image of folks waiting to board a ship. That was it. And I started from there. Every week is the same process. I sit on my couch, usually on a Monday or Tuesday, throw on a horror movie, and bang out a chapter. I just build from the one I wrote before. And I hate every word of it. I worry about not connecting to the themes I'd written about in previous chapters. I think that what I wrote is garbage. I think about scrapping it. I think about publishing a tearful message about taking the show down, of quitting mid-season and limping down the street to the bar and just disappearing. Then, my lady, she makes me read it to her. And I stop constantly and ask, is it okay? Are you sure? Do you think people will like it? And she tells me to shut up and keep reading. 
At the end, she says it's perfect, that she loves it, and I have no idea if she's serious. If she's lying, I'm thankful for it because I get to turn off my brain long enough to write one of these intros on a Wednesday morning, fire up GarageBand, and then record it like I'm doing now. I don't listen to it, and I just put it online, because I have even less confidence in my podcasting voice than I do in my writing. Then it's done. Out there. I have a few days of reprieve, of not sweating under a self-imposed deadline, and if I'm lucky, I'll receive messages from some of you that keep my head in the game, or reviews. And speaking of, your reviews on Apple and Spotify are so helpful, and man, y'all made me want to cry this week. Okay, maybe I actually did. But real quick, I wanted to send some serious love to a few folks who gave me the confidence to write this chapter. BD Smith 24 with the Goosebumps reference, which was totally my favorite as a kid. Um, user trying to get pregnant in LA, a name that really made me laugh out loud. Thanks for listening. And Caitlinita, I totally hugged my dogs for you. But then, after a few days of the latest episode dropping, the stress creeps back in and I start all over. I avoid eye contact with my laptop for a few days. I stare at a blank page for another. Then I get something written and read it to my family, and then just publish it before I can continue second-guessing myself. This week, my dogs fell asleep, but they didn't leave the room. My lady didn't hate it. And maybe you won't either. So thanks, as always, for sailing with me this season. Ladies and gentlemen, the doctor is in, and the haunt is on. Chapter 18. The silhouettes of two men were bathed in the sickly glow of a dozen television monitors. Both seated before the silent moving images, the man on the right was slouched, neck cricked, his head lolling over the seat back. On the left, his new counterpart was a bundle of excitement, body visibly vibrating from the constant tapping of one of his feet. His gaze moved from one screen to the next, then back, before he depressed the button on the handheld radio once more. I do not know if that blonde dickhead tells lives about the lifeboats. He transferred the radio from one hand to the other. But this is not a problem. I have a plan, my friends. Letting go of the button, the man waited and watched the cameras. On one screen, a corpse hung from the archway in the mini golf course. On another, the upper half of an unmoving woman was stuffed into the open lid of a grand piano. On a handful of the monitors... Groups of uniformed employees prowled the labyrinthine corridors of the Baroness. Next to the lifeboats, a group of five people stared back into the camera. After a moment, the channel clicked. An unsteady voice asked, Is this really lazy? Of course, my horse. I'm waving to you right now, Iceman. He was doing so. Then he slugged the slouched-over body next to him, as if getting the dead man to join him. On the other end of the radio, Chadwick Stafford spoke slowly, as if choosing his words with caution. We... we thought you were, um... we thought you were dead. No way, man. You cannot kill Lazy. After they took my Sophia, they put me in... what is it? Timeout? Laszlo punched the body next to him once again. 
But I told them, and I'll tell you, they do not know who I am. I have freed myself from far stronger. There was another longer delay, and Laszlo Bathory watched the huddled group conversing and the radio exchanging hands. Finally, Chad's wife, Teresa, said, How are you? How is your foot, Lazy? Is Hunky Dory, my friend here in the booth, he donated his shoes to me. But we must hurry. I would love to continue chatting with my friends, but we do not have the time now. Later, when we are free from the ship, dinner? That will be on Lazy. These men know where I am calling from now, so listen. Many are dead. The ship is uh, a, a battleground. Groups are searching for you and others. We cannot hide forever. So, we must bring the fight to them. And soon. Standing up, Lazy hefted the long metal rod he'd leaned against the desktop. The room echoed with the pop and crash of shattering monitors. By the glow of the last remaining screen, Lazy turned his weapon to the keyboard and hard drives, creating explosions of bright sparks and splintered plastic chunks, before watching the group on the final monitor once more. The two men were animated, arms waving, then pointing in different directions. Finally, Chad was given the radio, and he came back on the line. Okay, Lazy. What do you think we should do? Driving the rod through the grainy image of his friends, Lazy was suddenly in near total darkness. He shoved his chair out of the way and nearly tripped over the second body on the floor. He gripped the door handle and said, Go to where I met you, Iceman. Do you remember? I have a surprise for you. Pulling the door open, Laszlo inched his head out and looked both ways down the darkened hallway. Seeing no one, he stepped out. Chad's voice crackled over the radio. What does that mean? You will know what to do, Lazy said. I must go now. Lazy, wait. This was a woman's voice. I don't know how to say this, so I'll just, I'll just go for it. You can't trust Sophia. I'm sorry. Lazy studied the radio speaker, not responding. Are you there? I will find you soon, Lazy said, before twisting the volume knob down. He clipped the radio to his belt and limped off down the hallway. On the Lido deck, the knuckles of Donnie Frederick's left hand were stark white as he throttled the railing. He clutched his radio in his opposite hand with the same strength. Once, twice, he depressed the talk button, but let go without saying a word. Instead, he yowled, his voice dampened by the dense rain, and then threw the radio overboard. A pair of employees stood at attention nearby, while a bikini-clad body floated face down in the hot tub beside him. Kneeling right above her, on the rim, a man sobbed into his hands. In a flash, Donnie yanked him to his feet and shoved the man against the rail. Between wheezing breaths, the shuddering man managed, What are you? Before Donnie slapped him, hard, across the mouth. You must do more, he said. I already began the crying man. I loved her. He asks of you what you believe is impossible to give. But I... I did... that! His eyes shifted back and forth from Donnie's piercing stare to the woman in the hot tub. Oh my god, I can't believe... I did, I did that for you! Quit blubbering. You did nothing for me. Your actions were for his glory. Tell me your name again? Stuttering... Kevin? And where were you from? Taos. 
New Mexico. That's right, Taos. You're a long way from home, no? Kevin nodded his head. And your wife? What, what about her? Her name, Kevin. Are you even listening to me? Her name is Lindsay. No, her name was Lindsay. Her sacrifice brings us closer. Donnie spun the man around and pushed his head over the side so that he was staring into the pitch black water. As will yours. You can't be serious. Who are you to question his call, his desires? Tell me, Kevin, who is in control? The man only coughed, sputtered, like he was choking on his own tongue. Rain pattered on the plexiglass overhang above them. Who is in control? Behind them, the two employees chanted, He is. He is. He is. Finally, the shaking man said, Yes, okay, yes, yes. He is in control. Then, it is time to follow his instructions, Donnie said, and released the fistfuls of the man's shirt he'd been clutching. Go on. The man heaved one leg up toward the banister, and with Donnie's help, over it. His other leg followed, and then Kevin was clinging to the side of the Baroness, 100 feet above the choppy, frothing Atlantic, thousands of miles from his home in Taos, and just a yard from the body of his wife, a woman he'd married over 20 years before. All you have to do is let go, Donnie said, his voice back to a calm, soothing tone. You will be welcomed unto him. Not like this. I, I can't. I can't do this. The man's knees were buckling. Of course you can. All you have to do is start with this little piggy right here. He tapped the index finger of Kevin's hand, then uncurled it. Then Donnie did the same with the man's middle finger. And then this little piggy. Go on, Kevin. Go to the market. Kevin was beyond words and only whimpered. Barely a whisper, Donnie said, Let go. One hand came free, and then the other, and Kevin from New Mexico was no longer face to face with Donnie Fredericks, but plunging into the ocean. With a wry smile, Donnie turned on his heels and marched away from the hot tub. His employees flanked him, and once they stepped into the rain again, one of the uniforms opened an umbrella and held it over Donnie as they walked. The group traversed the Lido deck, bypassed the cinema screen and stage. The severed, coffin-shaped wooden box still lay in the center, slick with rainwater. More than a dozen lifeless cruisers bobbed in the pool, while a trio of other guests were suspended high above, crucified to the steel scaffolding of the sound system. Donnie and his men ascended the stairs, and before entering the bridge, the door opened and Sophia stepped out into the corridor. Donnie looked her up and down, noting the short dress he demanded she'd change into, and then turned to his companions. He said, simply, stay off the radios. Find them. All of them. Kill on sight? asked one man, as he shook the water from his now-folded umbrella. No. It's, it's obvious they are... Donnie began, then considered his next words. He believes they are something special or else we wouldn't be tested this way. Keep them alive. They will be our final offering. Both men nodded, then went back out into the rain. Sophia put a hand on the blonde man's chest. Donnie, I have to tell you some... 
Donnie jammed a finger onto Sophia's lips, severing her sentence. Why, yes, you do have to tell me something. Tell me, I was under the impression you could sway your husband, that you could bring him to us, onto our side, his side. I, I thought I could, she said. And now we've got some awful Romanian pinball just bouncing around my ship. God, in his voice. It's like listening to some broken cartoon character. I, too, have trouble with my English, like him. Donnie stepped forward and wrapped his arms around Sophia. He pushed her head to his chest. Yes, dear, I know. And hence why it's better when you, when you keep your mouth shut. His other hand traced circles on her lower back. So keep doing that. And then go find him. This is your mess. And you need to clean it up. But I, I need... Donnie constricted his arms around her body, cutting her off again. You have one need. To put a stop to your lazy husband. He's ruining my fun and games. Not that it's going to change anything. Not our meeting with destiny. But still... What an annoying man he is. I don't know how you thought marrying him was a smart idea. Donnie spun the woman around and shoved her toward the open door and the rain beyond. She inched outside, hair and dress immediately soaked and clinging to her body. She looked back, hesitated. With a dismissive wave, Donnie said, Shoo, fly. Lazy stole it, she blurted out, then disappeared. Stole what? Donnie thought. And he studied the cascading rain for a beat before realization dawned. He felt his heart sink. And then he crashed through the bridge door. When he approached the makeshift altar and saw the empty surface, Donnie grabbed hold of the table and with a throaty scream flipped it over. The sole employee left in the room, lying on the ground and just waking from being knocked unconscious, watched this and pretended to be dead. The five people from Table 9 heard the emergency door close behind them. They were exhausted, dirty, ravenous, and faced a nearly ship-length hall ahead of them. Half of the group hobbled, either from new injuries or aggravating existing conditions, and used the walls as support. The ship's second level appeared to be spared of the carnage from the rest, yet Greg Hughes was jumpy. Of course he was. He kept imagining the streak of a blue and gold uniform, or, somehow strangely, the slimy thrust of a massive tentacle bursting through one of the stateroom doors. Yet, the hallway remained quiet, eerily still. Sometime after the group listened to the last of Lazy's radioed words, they'd argued over what to do, debating whether or not they should just try one of the lifeboats, or if they should trust Lazy what the hell they were going to do, and how they were going to do it. Chad Stafford... <laughs> Chad Stafford didn't explain how, but assured the group that he knew where their Romanian dinner Fred was directing them, and it wasn't until they were in the echoey silence of the stairwell that they realized that the ship's engines had ceased, the subtle hum now absent. The Baroness was adrift, rudderless, somewhere in the North Atlantic, and, they supposed where Donnie's insane rendezvous was to take place. Now, the group stood before a gold placard reading 208, the first possible safe space they'd come across. Greg fumbled out his keycard, thankful that the locking mechanism was battery-powered 
and opened the door. You can wait in my room, Chad added. We'll run down and find whatever it is and come right back. In the meantime, can you make something for Marie, a splint? Chad leaned in to kiss Teresa and Greg followed suit, grabbing onto Carolyn. Marie watched both, breathed out hard, then turned away and shuffled into the darkened room. The rest shared an awkward look before Greg said, Just lock the door, okay? Once they heard the sharp click of the deadbolt, the two men, separated by about 30 years and worlds of difference in their preparation for anything like this, kept on their path toward the bow of the ship. They moved a little faster in a simplified pair and were soon approaching a large alcove midway through the hall. A row of elevators stood on one side of the space while a pair of glass double doors led into a convenient sort of area. Soda and candy vending machines surrounded a silvery gray behemoth. The appliance hummed and the normally hollow recesses in its belly, where cruisers could stick buckets under to collect ice that would refresh their souvenir cups, was occupied. Both men crouched before the stone statue. What in the good fuck is this? Chad said. It's their god, Greg told him. For some reason, he felt drawn to the totem. Enamored. You know, I've always had a tenuous relationship with the idea of a higher power. But when I think of the big guy upstairs, I don't picture him, or her, or whatever, as a, as a rock. This isn't the god, Greg said, but a representation of it. You tell me they've been praying to an octopus? Chad asked, and he reached for the idol. With two hands, he pulled it free from the ice machine. A plastic bag filled with gummy bears fell out of the hollow. Both men stared at the candy and left it on the carpet. Not an octopus, Greg said. Carolyn explained all of this to me. It's, it's a librarian thing. Supposedly, this being is older than time, older than our concept of reality. He existed before Christianity, before Norse religions, before everything. Yeah, I heard all the crazy shit Donnie was saying, so what? They think they can hijack a cruise ship, sacrifice a bunch of chubby Americans, and that'll somehow bring this dude back from the dead? No, not dead. He's just sleeping or waiting. Greg took the statue and was surprised by its weight. Touching it, a calm sensation flowed through him, like the carving was energizing or healing him. I don't care, Chad said. Same thing. The men stood. What are we supposed to do with it? You tell me, Greg responded. Lazy said you'd know what to do. Well, I don't. I've never understood a thing about that man. Let's just get back to your room and we'll, we'll figure it out. Greg stalled, but held the totem out toward his companion, then felt a wash of relief when Chad waved him off. He wanted to hold on to it. Keep it, Chad said. You know more about it than I do. And there was something about holding it. The object. Greg liked it. Liked the sensation of purpose it had begun to provide for him. The duo was nearly back to Greg's stateroom, maybe 20 feet away, when they saw the stairwell door, the same one the whole group had emerged from only a few minutes before, open. One, two, three blue and gold employees emerged. They, along with Chad and Greg, froze. There was a silent standoff, five men separated by a half a football field of intricate carpet and gaudy sconces, but it only lasted a minute. 
Greg had time to see two of the men reach for their holsters before being temporarily blinded by a muzzle flash and deafened by the shots Chad was already firing next to his ear. His brain was fighting between telling him to run or to drop to the ground, but then a punch to his gut made the decision for him. No, not a punch, a sharp sting. It doubled him over. And then a second bullet ripped through his arm, and Greg was finally on the ground. He could feel his own warmth soaking through the carpet beneath him. Thank you for listening to episode 18 of The Ghost Modernist. Please take a minute to review the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really helps me and sometimes gets the show higher into the rankings, which then in turn means more people might find it and start listening. The theme music for today's episode of The Ghost Modernist was provided, as always, by Atrium Carcheri. Head over to Bandcamp to check out Simon and everyone else in the Cryo Chamber label. Remember, there are two types of people in this world, the haunters and the haunted. Which one are you?